Today's episode is brought to you by Slay House Publishing, recorded at Wayne Howard Studios. He's a maker of maps by day, writer of horror fiction by night. He lives with his family in Michigan. His debut horror novella, Curse Corvus, was released in April 2023, and his follow-up novella, Melonhead Mayhem, was released by Shortwave Publishing in July 2023. He has stories published by The Other Stories Podcast, Cemetery Gates Media, among others. He is also the founder of Dreadstone Press. How have you been this summer? Good, busy. Um, seems like summer's always busy, <laughs> but that's life. Yeah, two novellas uh, in a pretty short period of time. That's that's really impressive. I mean, I, I don't know that I could even write one novella in multiple years, you know? Well, so the, the little secret to that is... Um, I wrote them a while ago. Although the irony is I actually did write both of them in the same year. It just happened to be 2020 when I wrote them. Mm. Um, and then had been shopping them around and decided, you know what? I want to get one of these things out there. So that's when I decided last fall to do Curse Corvus as a self-pub um, title. And so that had been in the works for a while and it was going to be early 23 and then end up being April. Um, but in that time, the whole melon heads thing happened with shortwave and um alan there said hey let's do this in in the summer of 23 i'm like okay sweet i guess i got two books coming out this year <laughs> that's awesome i had not realized i i mean i guess i should have because of course to to add a lot of polish to stuff and really get it where you want it it, it takes a lot of time but i had not realized that uh melonhead mayhem was you know kind of three years in the making um that's pretty wild yeah um that one's interesting because i wrote it kind of in a flurry it started from um from a short story and i wanted to expand it and um i got a rejection early that <laughs> kind of broke me a little bit and like I send rejections like I feel like as a as a whole I'm pretty good with handling them I've gotten a lot of rejections but that one in particular kind of broke me and I was like well this thing sucks and I'm not going to do anything with it and I I didn't touch it for a year or two mm. it, it was a while I didn't touch it for a while and then had been sitting there you know I, I wrote the thing so I, it just was kind of one of those days I saw us like a sub call for it and I thought you know what I'll I'm gonna dig it back out I'll reread it maybe it's not terrible and I and I reread it and it it wasn't terrible um <laughs> it uh it needed a little bit of work at that time of course but yeah I put some work into it and then it it did it did well but still got rejected but like there was some positive feedback involved. And so I'm like, okay, this thing isn't, this isn't something I need to bury. Like there's something here. I should, I should, you know, keep it, revise it some more and just like, keep it ready. Yeah. And then, then yeah, last fall when Alan posted on, on Twitter, like, Hey, thinking about doing novellas, if anyone's got one, you know, pitch it to me. I'm like, okay, cool. So I sent him an email and I, I almost didn't send it because I'm like, I don't really know Alan. And he's like, any mutuals? And I'm like, ah, well, I do have it ready, though. 
maybe I'll just, I'll, I'll, I won't. And then I wasn't going to do it. And then uh, Alexis, my friend, Alexis, she's like, you have to do it. You have to send the email. She's like, what's the worst? It's already a no, right? Just send it. He could just say, mm, no, thanks. And you'd be in the same spot. So I said, okay, fine, I'll send it. And I think within the week he had read it, wanted the the rest of it, and then read the whole whole thing and said, yeah, I want to, I want to, I want to publish this book and I want to start like a whole killer VHS series and make this the first one. Do you feel like there was a lot of pressure there to get Melonhead Mayhem right? I mean, granted, it was already in acceptance, but, you know, now you're kind of the flagship of this killer VHS series. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I had, there were a lot of times and just, I think as a writer, it's pretty standard for this to be the case, but um, a lot of instances where I thought, I is is this good enough like mm. am I going to regret being this first book and and you know and I, I don't remember where I heard it but I maybe I saw it somewhere on Twitter eons ago and it was something like never talk poorly about your previous works that have been accepted because that kind of speaks poorly of the editors that decided they liked it and wanted to publish it mm. and and you know there, there's some nuance there that I don't really care to get into but the essence is I think pretty pretty good and I try to remember that a lot and it's like and not that this applies specifically but Alan read it and he liked it and he said he wanted to publish it so like that I need that to be enough for me yeah to say yeah it's good enough you know and and to trust the the process of going through the the edits we did a couple round edits so Mm -hmm. you know I I am proud of it and I am you know I'm happy happy with it and and if even on those those days where I think, yeah, was it good enough? Alan said it was good enough. So it, it's good enough, you know, like that that's something, right? Yeah, absolutely. I love that mentality of, you know, kind of having faith in the people who have faith in you. Yes. Um, like what a utopian ideal right there. Like, you know, if, if we if we just did maybe a little bit more of that, you know, maybe we'd have a few fewer problems in the world yes yeah um for for what it's worth uh i you know swallowed melonhead mayhem as soon as i i finally you know kind of gave myself time to like indulge in it and uh it is such a fun book and and it surprised me because i i thought that it was just gonna be mayhem and it turned out to have a much more emotional core that I was like, man, I really, <laughs> I really feel some things about these characters right now. Um, so yeah, I mean, like as far as being, uh, uh, you know, good enough, like it's absolutely, it's it's great. I really, really enjoyed it. Thank you, I appreciate that. And and you really, um, you said the, you said the words that really like kind of make my heart heart sing a little bit. Fun. I think I write fun books and I, and I'm leaning into that. I, I I resisted it for a long time because I thought, you know, I'm not, I'm not writing the most like sophisticated and like beautiful language. And like, I kept comparing myself to people who just write differently and that's stupid. Mm. Like I can read their work, respect it and think highly of them. But that doesn't mean that if I don't write it that way, that I'm doing it wrong. And so I, it's it's taken some time and some encouragement some from from some friends but i i write fun books they are fun but 
I also hope to have a little bit more in there than that. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't always know if that's going to be the case, but I appreciate that when you say there's a little bit, you know, there's a little bit more of an emotional core there than, than maybe the cover would, would tell you is going to be there. And, and I think that's, it will probably get into this, but I think that's the fun in one of the, like the, the huge benefits of doing these homages to the, like the, the eighties B horror movies, you get to have the fun, but you can insert a little bit more to it. So there's a little bit more meat on the bone. Yeah, I definitely want to get into, you know, kind of the root of this um, 80s, 90s, you know, kind of B-movie stuff um, for sure. But before we do that, you know, I kind of wanted to revisit, you know, this idea of like um, just owning your voice and, and like, you know, like write the stories that you want to write. I and 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 the idea of rejections because i've i've handled i've been sent plenty of rejections because you know i'm just uh sometimes i i struggle to to really figure it out you know like what am i trying to say through this particular piece or something yeah um but i've also had to send a lot of rejections and that's the hardest part of the process because yep um i you know i i served as editor for two of slay house's anthologies and it's always the case when we have, you know, hundreds of stories that come through and you read all of them and it's not that any one of them are, are bad or anything like that. It's just like, you know, what's kind of my vision for, for what I'm looking for in this particular moment. Um, And there's a lot of stuff that I think is really great, but maybe it's just not there yet. Mm -hmm. And the, the amount of labor that we'd have to do to get it there, um, is just you know it's it's kind of cost prohibitive to to try to work that through um from a time perspective you know or or sometimes it's like you know just this wasn't for me but it is for someone um and i think it's hard to convey to people like keep trying you know keep going keep working on this or even sometimes just send it somewhere else because someone else wants it and needs it yes absolutely and and i'll echo those thoughts um, when I did the first, well, the only anthology that Dreadstone Press did, um, Field Notes from a Nightmare, it's an eco-horror anthology. And I, when I was writing the guidelines, I was like trying to describe like what kind of eco-horror I wanted. And then I thought, no, I don't, I don't think I can do that. I think I want it to be broad. And I was happy that I did, but as I was reading the stories, it became clear and it's not even really the the right word because it was clear only in that when I read a story I knew if it was fitting the vision that I had or not Mm -hmm. but not again not that I could even articulate what that vision was it just was what am I what was I thinking in that moment would work for this concept that is a little bit nebulous in my head yeah and it's hard and it's and I think I think a lot of people do get it but especially newer writers it's it's not something you would really even consider but i i hope that they take heart in that like i'm rejecting Mm. stories that are there's absolutely nothing wrong with them it just wasn't the type of story i was looking for right you know that that's it it doesn't (laughs) and yeah it's it, it is definitely the hardest part of the process yeah yeah um 
I I don't en- envy anyone who has to read a slush pile and like has to, you know, like try to figure out what is it that, you know, is going to resonate or not. Um, so visiting Melonhead Mayhem, because I think uh, this is the book that I asked you on the show, you know, to, to talk about yeah. and, and, you know, to kind of get to know you through. Um, help the our, our listeners know what melon may or melonhead mayhem is you know by just introducing it and um and then let's let's talk about some of its kind of origins and some of the the impulses that um inspired you to create it okay yeah so melonhead mayhem is a uh sort of cryptid but it's not really a cryptid creature feature uh b-movie monster mash (laughs) um it is a bit of a riff on a local urban legend to me um melon heads here in west michigan uh although i they they do exist elsewhere i guess ohio maybe in connecticut i don't know there's a couple other places i'm certain there the origin of those melon heads um varies because the the origin for the one in West Michigan centers on an actual place, the Felt Estate, the Felt Mansion, mm-hmm. which is um near the lake shore here in West Michigan and and features on the cover of the book. Um so yeah, I don't know what the, the origin of, of the other ones uh are is are. Um but here in, in West Michigan they're little bulbous headed creatures that kind of humanoid maybe were originally children at one point um there's lots of you know kind of myth mythological theories of mad scientists uh experimenting on children but there was never like a laboratory or like some insane asylum (laughs) thing but that wasn't there uh so they the 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 urban legend goes that they live in the woods there's a state park that surrounds the mansion and kind of butts up against the Lake Michigan and that they kind of, they hide in the woods and little, little caves under, you know, under the ground. Um, and so I, I had, I'm from West Michigan, but I'm not from where I live currently, which is much closer to the Melonhead. So I didn't really know them growing up. I have, I've only heard of them in the last you know handful of years. And I think as soon as I, I heard about them, I thought I got to write something about these, you know, it just, <laughs> it's fascinating. Um, and as far as urban legends and you know cryptids go, I, I I'm sure there are books about them, but very few, you know, that that I'm aware of. So I thought this is a perfect territory to explore, and and um, yeah, I kind of mixed that up with a whole retro. Hey, let's watch a movie, and oops, they come back, they come to life, and and the characters are kind of off and running from there. What do you think is kind of the the attraction of local folklore? Because I see that, especially in the indie scene, I think there are a lot of like cryptid stories that mm-hmm. um, have cropped up over the last couple of years. And I think it's kind of fascinating that we see so many of these stories, you know, kind of circulate or recirculate, um, you know, as as kind of this aspect of local folk folklore. So, you know, what what do you think is kind of the draw for some of these stories? Why why are we um, so seemingly fascinated with this sort of thing? 
So I think from a consumer aspect, I don't really like using that word, but you know, various forms of media. So I'll just, I'll, I'll use that consumer aspect. There's something to the, I think there's very much something to this is close to home. And this is something I can relate to from a geographic standpoint. And I think <laughs> I I have a little bit of a geography background. I make maps you know, for a living. Um, yes. and, there's, and, you know, I, I don't have much in terms of like human geography, but there from an anthropological standpoint, there's, you know, something to geography in our sense of place and where we belong in our culture. I, there's more than something. I mean, it's an it's entire, it's entire thing, but I, but kind of distilling that down to here now, urban legends are fun because it's, it's a place, you know, you could drive there. You could walk there depending on what it is. It, you probably know someone who knows someone who, you know, quote unquote saw something. And so I think that just, familiarity and and being able to directly relate to something spooky is fun um and then from kind of on the flip side from a, like a writer perspective I think they're easy targets but I don't mean that in a bad way because <laughs> they are fun stories and they're always set in a situation where they're quite ambiguous so you have a lot of room to play with you get you get kind of like a kernel that helps jumpstart the, you know, your imagination and go, okay, I can, I can do whatever I want with it. And, and I tried to really keep the, the legend true in the book. Mm -hmm. You know, I read a bunch of different theories and stuff and I tried to kind of address, I think all of them in it. Yeah. But the, the whole come, you know, make a movie about melon heads and then you watch a VHS and then come <laughs> to life. Obviously that, that was the part that I got to, you know, make up and have fun with. I love that. Um, I, I feel like I continue to to think about these like like the unknown frontier, if if you will, um, as kind of a, a an artifact of our modern world. You know, I I feel like at least in modernity, we have traveled so far and we've seen, you know, we've kind of conquered the globe, so to speak. Um, and there are very few frontiers left to us, especially in a digital age when you know, all information is kind of accessible all the time. We seem to still need that next frontier. You know, mm -hmm. we still need that kind of um, mystery. Uh, it it gives us something that I I feel like, you know, perhaps we feel we're missing. So whether it be like ocean deep dives, which we see a lot of recently in in documentaries and film you know a lot of let's explore the ocean because we haven't done it yet um or talking about what new frontiers are there for us in space missions you know like a mission to mars would be a another frontier that we haven't yet crossed and and perhaps for me cryptids and you know kind of these paranormal folklore figures of our of our unknowable past, right? Like represents another frontier that it feels safe to examine uh, because, you know, there's there's always gonna be something that we don't know about ourselves or our local histories. Yep. Yeah, I totally agree, completely agree. So 
Melonhead Mayhem, of course, is about, you know, kind of these these cryptids, these uh, urban legends, but it is also absolutely a love letter to 80s and 90s B-movie tropes and, uh, and uh, you know, the kind of stuff that you would see in a VHS horror section at your local blockbuster, right? So um, what were some of the 80s and 90s films that, you know, really kind of influenced you as you were thinking about how to portray these melon heads and some of the antics they get up to in the book? So the the kind of easy answer to that is um, like your gremlins, your critters. Uh, so the, the kind of early pitch for this was um, critters, critters meets the ring, uh, which, you know, a, yeah. a comp is very loose. Like, you know, it's not there's absolutely none of the vibes of the ring in there, but it's just like kind of that loose plot <laughs> uh, like mechanism. Um, so you had like critters and OK, this is kind of um, I'm, I'm admitting this to you right now. I had never seen Critters when I wrote this. I watched it after the fact. Um, I just had seen the cover and I was like, okay, that's that's pretty similar to what I'm envisioning these things look like. And right. so just that the the cover was like kind of just always around, like looking at like, okay, yeah, rows of sharp teeth and, you know, big heads. And it just, so that was more like a visual thing. Um, I would say in general, like my favorite, probably my the evil dead and anything john carpenter are like my that those are the movies i love um the whole i mean the evil dead franchise really but um <laughs> what's interesting you know i was i've been thinking about this because you know you'd sent the question ahead of time and and i'm fairly young i say that as a i, I don't feel super young but Right. I was not around for the 80s. <laughs> I, I'm a 90s, a 90s baby. So yeah. Um all of those movies I, came well after the fact for me. I didn't live during that era. So I I uh, apologies to the people who did and, and feel like I'm I'm stealing <laughs> your <laughs> stealing your, your your nostalgia. But um but in the last four years or so, I've watched hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of movies and a lot of them are horror movies from the 70s 80s and 90s and and I've watched so many that I almost can't even pick one out other than like some of my absolute favorites like The Thing or Evil Dead and um and I and it's and it's interesting because I'm just kind of thinking about this now so I wrote Melonhead at the end of 2020 and I would have spent all of 2020 watching a lot of these movies and I think just I I what's that what's that term where you just like I don't know I'm I, I'm drawing a blank we're just like osmosis I guess we're like just, yes yeah where I've watched so many of those movies and just it kind of I soaked it up you know and 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 when I was writing it it just felt natural and I I'm not much of a plotter um and and frankly I I'm not very intentional when I write and I, I just go on instinct a lot. And so far it's worked fairly well, but I'll, I've read a couple of reviews of Melon Heads. I'm like, oh yeah, it does do that a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. It does. And and I think that's, fu I, that's fun though. Cause I kind of just write what I think feels good as a story and try to try to put some character stuff in it that I, that I can relate to, or that I think people can relate to. Um, but clearly I was 
I was feeding off of just hours and hours of watching these movies and and it was the right time to write that and 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 since then I've continued to watch you know hundreds more of them and so in the revisions it was always there it was never like oh what what was I doing and then trying to change it um uh and you know the references I have an evil do evil dead 2 reference in there yes, and uh-huh. some other so yeah it's it, I don't know if that's really like the best answer or like it's not very particular but it's just like all of them you know I watched a ton of them and they're and they're there and then they came out on the on the on the page I mean I, this this is something that I I didn't you know originally ask you when we were kind of planning for this but uh, that does bring up the question of you know when did you really start your love for for horror and and your your love for these kinds of movies because you say in the last four years you've read or you've watched you know like a hundred of these um so is is it are you a relative latecomer to horror or have you been around horror for a long time um i would say relative latecomer um now that being said both of my parents grew up reading stephen king um so it was there Uh, but i wasn't you know i don't have that background of like oh i read you know my first stephen king book at seven or 11 or you know something like that I, I was reading like goosebumps you know um oh yeah so and so I mean it it was always there but I think like the scary stories to tell in the dark and goosebumps and um I'm sure there's something else that I'm not remembering like those foundational pieces were absolutely there and I kind of grew out of it for a while and mm-hmm. and like my taste more went to like thrillers and stuff you know like I read a lot of Michael Crichton and and Ken Follett and like kind of like historical fiction and that was really where I like into high school and college that's kind of like the direction I was headed and then kind of in the middle of college I was like you know I'm gonna like my mom and my my parents are still reading Stephen King like I should I should I should do this you know I should try it and and so like about a decade maybe 12 years ago I started actually really reading Stephen King and getting into him that way and and I went through grad school and like writing was not a thing for me I didn't do it um I mean other than like (laughs) papers um ironically writing my my master's thesis I thought that actually was kind of fun I I think it'd be more fun if it wasn't like a technical (laughs) paper and it was and it was you know something I made up like a story and and that that's really kind of what drove me to start to start writing um was finishing up grad school and I had a little bit of time and um so I've only been writing I mean only it's been about maybe six ish six or seven years now and that's and getting into writing like I joined a little writer's group and like what do you write and like and and I had still even though I'd been like kind of catching up and reading like Stephen King and stuff horror felt like a dirty word still like you just like people mm. don't talk about that you know like oh nobody you know you don't write that and, and so I'm like <laughs> I write thrillers but like I wasn't I wasn't really and and really I was writing like spooky stories that's what I what I liked what I was getting back into and so it's yeah it's been the last four or five years of six years maybe of going no I I'm I'm writing horror fiction and I and I'm and I love reading it and I love watching it and like discovering these old you know 30 40 year old movies for the first time as an adult has been amazing (laughs) it's been just incredible yeah I I have a lot of love for old horror movies as well um but I I 
really didn't come into horror until uh, grad school. Um, mm. I, I had actually finished my master's degree and started in on a PhD program. And as part of that, I dove into like a lot of literary theory classes. And one of the classes I jumped into was a postmodern literary theory uh, class where, where we were, we were talking about postmodernism, postmodernism from the Marxist perspective. Right. Okay. And so um, from there I was introduced to a lot of postmodern horror um, through my weirdo professor and um that was just kind of kick-started the whole thing i was like this is this is actually a lot more fun than <laughs> you know i ever thought it would be yeah that's cool so nostalgia is a really important component i think to not just melonhead mayhem but also perhaps the whole you know killer vhs series that shortwave is doing and so i i kind of wanted to talk to you a little bit about where you see nostalgia's place being in a story like Melonhead Mayhem um, and other related art? Yeah, this is a this is a tough question because it's all over it, right? It's just, it's everywhere. You can't yeah. escape it. And, you know, the more I think about it, the more I wonder, is this a good or bad thing? And it's a weird thing to say because I, you know, I just wrote a book and, and I, and I love, lo- like that does this. And I absolutely love the killer VHS idea that shortwave is doing. And I think it's going to be a really great series. Um, and I think a lot of people are going to love it, but it's just a, well, like with most things, right. There's, there's the remembering fondly on, you know, your past, but you know, there's a lot of potential negative to that too being stuck in the past um mm. ignoring the things that were bad that were happening there at that time um i didn't exactly mean to to, to get into this that way and i don't really know where i want to go with it but i just <laughs> i've been thinking about nostalgia a lot and and i and in my own life i i tend to be very nostalgic i i i mm. am pretty good i can't remember what you know what i ate for lunch yesterday but like I'll remember very intensely these moments of spending time with my friends in college or with my now wife or, you know, family, just like trips and various other things that we did. And mm-hmm. it's like, I, I remember those things very well and it's easy to get lost in those. And I, I enjoy it, but it, you know, I don't, I don't know that it's all that healthy, it, it, but it can be. And maybe, and maybe, okay. So here, here's just a, a quick thought, maybe revisiting that, in like the form of a book can be a perhaps a healthier way to think back upon upon a time and then you know be able to set it aside and not just be stuck there i don't know I, i'm theorizing <laughs> yeah no i i mean one of the reasons i posed it to you you know first and foremost because uh, i know it's a difficult question to answer and i don't think there is a right answer you know like i i think that everyone's going to have their their own experience with nostalgia and my own feelings about nostalgia are like super complex, you know? Um, I find every once in a while an ad on like YouTube or something like that, that is just, it's just ripped from someone's VHS tape when they were recording Saturday morning cartoons. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's like for GAC or something, you know, (laughs) or like, 
you know what I mean? Like, like just yeah. some product of the nineties that has absolutely no place in 2023. Right. And yet he, we see that stuff and we're like, Oh man, remember Gak? And I have to think to myself, like, what is the impulse here? Like what, what is it that I'm remembering about Gak? Is it the experience of watching the television with my siblings, which I think is a wholesome experience yeah. you know i love my siblings and remembering times when i was able to spend unfiltered time with them mm -hmm. is is really important it deepens my appreciation for the experiences i've had with my siblings and thus reminds me of my love for them and so i think like that's a really positive impulse right like the the ability to to kind of revisit this moment or this feeling in time and and reorient myself to what's important in life mm -hmm. i think that's that's a positive you know impulse that that nostalgia can bring me but i also think about the many ways in which nostalgia is like weaponized against me you know um i think about the way that it is used as a tool of capitalism to try to get me to buy more products, yep. you know, to, to like, tell me that my life isn't enough, that it isn't uh, good enough that I'm upset about, you know, X, Y, and Z. And like, wouldn't it be great if I could just buy some GAC and fucking mm -hmm. forget about it for, you know, a weekend. Yeah. And I think that's where the danger lies, right? Yes. When it relies too heavily on trying to insinuate our place in the now is insufficient to the to who we were you know when and if only we could recover that who we were when we could solve our problems for today and i think that's the wrong impulse you know yeah. it doesn't help us find what is important in the now that we can celebrate that in our current moment instead it is an impulse to try to drive us you know, further away from our money, basically. Yeah, right. Well, and, and all kind of adding on to that, uh, I agree with everything you just said. And I, and I wonder if maybe that's one of the numerous benefits um, and powers of, of indie publishing indie mm. movies, where I think that at the heart of it it's much more of a i want of i i want to believe that at the heart of it is much more of a wholesome thing versus you know like corporate level marketing you know whatever to get you to yeah spend money or to forget about your about the real issues and so i think i can feel good about embracing melonhead mayhem in the killer vhs series because you know that's what we're doing we're just we're not yeah, we're not trying to trick you into thinking that the, that now is now in the future are you know are, are not worth looking at. And but it it's fun to revisit those things when you know maybe for people who lived during that time had less responsibility. I think that's the heart. That's like kind of the the trigger of of nostalgia is thinking back to when you had less responsibilities because yeah, being an adult is hard. Being a human is hard a lot of times. Um, and so to think it's easy to think fondly about the times when you didn't have to worry about being human. You just could, could exist in that moment. And um, I'm, I'm kind of already meandering, but uh, I, 
I was also thinking of something where for me, I think nostalgia can kind of plays a role in that I'm I'm often thinking I was so creative when I was a kid. I think that a lot. And that's a kind of a weird mm. thing to think, but I I I'm told it too. So it's not it's not like I'm I'm completely uh delusional <laughs> here. I I would make just the most ridiculous things out of cardboard and duct tape and and just I, I loved to draw more and and anything artistic and creative. I I really and I think most children are like that, right? Yeah. And, and so a lot of what writing is for me now and and this idea of being creative again, it's it's kind of like this back and forth of rediscovering my childhood. And mm. um, you know, the 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 dedication to this book, um, I don't know if you you read it, but for my boy who helps me me remember the joy in imagination and um mm. i didn't <laughs> i didn't it felt right when i wrote it but it feels actually more right now that we're talking about this just like <laughs> what what creating these books what writing can be for me and just like remembering like how to how to kind of be creative again i love that um, there, there was so much about Melonhead Mayhem that I think really spoke to me. And, and one of the reasons why I posed the question to begin with um, is because I think that the book, too, is in a way trying to explore its own feelings about nostalgia and its own feelings about adulthood and the responsibilities that we take on. Um, there is a, the, the kind of catalyst to the book book even starting is Sophia and Carson they're cousins um Carson is in town to try to clean up his grandmother's house uh after her passing and then discovers you know this old VHS tape in the closet and invites Sophia over and there's this impulse from Carson I think to to invite Sophia over not to kind of like recapture what was lost, but to use nostalgia to reconnect in a way that that is important to their relationship. And it acts as a catalyst for them to begin addressing the things in their life that they've left unaddressed to one another. And I, I just love that. I love that in this book. I love the relationship that Sophia and Carson have together um, added as it is kind of catalyzed by their nostalgia for one another, you know, not just the media that they share, but really the nostalgia for one another. And, and that empowers them to reconnect in a way that becomes very meaningful. Yes. In fact, that was one time I was somewhat in intentional. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, um, I don't really have a whole lot to add to that because you, you said really what I was going for and and maybe slight modification, at least in terms of what I was thinking, is that I think Carson thinks that it's just to recapture the moment, but it becomes more than that. Like, mm. yeah, you're not you didn't misread it and it doesn't really matter either way, but it just, <laughs> you know, that's it's a little bit of both. Right. Like, you know, the surface level is, oh, we'll just recapture this moment. But it, it yeah, I think it is deeper than that initial impulse and it becomes and it becomes this connection to 
you know, child, essentially childhood best friends that had have grown apart. Yes. Yeah. Um, this is the, the emotional core, you know, of the book that I, I was kind of talking about that, at least for me, it resonated so strongly. Um, I really, really felt a lot of love for it. That and the references to the, the rubbery skin of the melon heads. Um, I absolutely love that detail because again, it speaks to a craft that I don't think is done enough in modern media. You know, I want a weird wet puppet in in my films, you know, like, yeah. Uh, Yes. And I, and I, there is always, there's never a bad time to say this, but I'm going to say it here. Um, uh, More movies need practical effects. (laughs) Absolutely. I, I mean, having watched hundreds and hundreds of movies over the last few years, and a lot of them over the course of the last four, five, six decades that I'd never seen before, I would watch anything, just about anything from the like mid seventies to early nineties over anything from like the late nineties to early to mid aughts, because the, the shift to visual, like special effects, computer CGI, whatever, the actual term is, I don't know, um, is so jarring and it just doesn't hold up. Whereas like, okay, yeah, mm-hmm. you know, there's a puppet in the eighties, but like, it's still, it just feels so much more realistic and mm. it hold it, it holds up a lot, a lot. Yeah. There's a magic there, right? Like it's, it's, I think of film as the art of illusion and it's not necessarily about trying to convince me that what I'm seeing is real it's about immersing me in the experience and giving me something that I think is magical yeah I love that I love the idea of the the illusion I don't need to know if it's actually real I just want to you know I want to I want to feel like it's real in that moment and be okay with knowing before and after that it wasn't, you know? Yes. You know, I almost didn't, I almost didn't include that detail. And I, I, I kind of went back and forth on bringing these monsters to life. If that meant like the real monster or, or the the movie monster. And, and I, it felt more fun that way (laughs) to, to do it. I totally agree. It is more fun that way. And and as a little added detail, I'm like, this is, I, I, I don't know, again, it's just like, oh, this is magic. Like, this is, <laughs> this is where the fun really is. It's such yeah. a, a great experience. So you're not just an author, you're also the editor of your own press, um, Dreadstone Press. And, and you've published a number of different like really interesting projects, especially the split scream series. Um, so I kind of wanted to ask you a little bit about, you know, some of your philosophy behind curating art and producing art alongside other people. Yeah. Uh, so um, Dreadstone Press has been interesting. Um I don't even really know why I wanted to start it in the first place. Just like, Hey, this could be fun to publish other people. And, you know, there's a little bit of the self, like maybe narcissistic aspect of like, I could, I could help 
give visibility to other people's stories. And I mean, that I think that's kind of inherent in all publishing, but it's also a lot of fun and being able to read <laughs> really excellent writers, you know, like getting them to send you stories and read them go, yeah, I'm pumped to share this with the world. Like, I'm so glad that I get to to help facilitate this being out in the world. Even if it's, you know, from the the scale of the the flash fiction that I did for a couple of years, um, just posted on the website. I, some some of my favorite stories ever are were there, are there. Um but um I think the philosophy kind of morphed into like where can I find where can we publish stories that aren't necessarily getting a ton of visibility or credit and that's flash fiction and and in the case of the split screen series um the novelette because it is such an odd length um for my purposes i chose 10 to 20,000 words and you know it's a little too long for a lot of short stories in terms of anthologies or magazines but it's it's not typically quite long enough for you know standalone novella book um and and so i thought it could be a lot of fun. They're, they're easy to read in terms of like the length of time and commitment and they're, Mm -hmm. they're fun to write. And, um, and you know what, if I put two together, it kind of feels like a double feature, (laughs) you know, and, (laughs) and it, and it kind of coming back to this whole movie thing, it was like in my intro and I I don't remember exactly how it goes, but it's something like, I, I say, like, I'm not saying that stories have to be like movies, but I'm also not, not saying that these stories together kind of feel like a double feature you know and (laughs) and um and it's like you know you could you could pick up the book on a friday night and and read the stories back to back in one sitting and and i feel like get a similar type of experience that you might watching a, a friday night movie double feature and and that was kind of the whole point to it and 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 to get the like the old like music industry split ep feel of like hey I don't know that person but I love this artist so I'm going to pick up that that EP and then and and then I'll fall in love with the other one um and I love that idea like there are people who who know both authors or or neither but it's pretty common to say hey I know that author and I really like their work I want to read that story and then hopefully they become come fans of the other one um I'm really proud of the series and and here's a bit of not so breaking news because of when this will air, but um, uh, Dreadstone Press is actually coming to a close. Oh no! Uh, <laughs> but um, what hopefully people will have found out uh, by this point is that the split screen series will live. Um, I got to a point earlier this year where I where I kept thinking to myself. I have to put more time into Dreadstone Press and then directly on the heels of that, I have no more time to give. And it was, it was not sustainable. And I felt like I was neglecting personal things. And it just, it was like, I can't keep doing this at least not the way it's going. And so um, that wasn't the goal. I, I, I got the, the stories for split screen three and four to come out this year. And I had every intention of continuing on and then it just kind of hit me all at once. And I started to tell a couple, a couple, you know, close friends about what, what was going on. And, 
and um and at StokerCon, a, a sort of tentative deal was struck, and um, I will be moving Split Scream over to Tenebrous, Tenebrous Press with Matt and Alex. Oh, that um, is a, a, you could not have chosen a better home for this series. I mean, I'm <laughs> devastated to hear that, you know, Dreadstone Press is closing, but Tenebrous Press is, like, they, they understand the, the assignment, right? So, completely. Yeah. It is. It is definitely a bittersweet, bittersweet thing, but it is like best case scenario because the, the alternative was it just stopped completely. But in this in this way, like, you know, I'm sad to see the press go and I, I liked the flash fiction and all that, but I get to continue to pick, curate and edit the split screen series and it just it has a new home and and I have the support and the resources of of those two who are just mm. brilliant people. And and, oh, yeah. and you're right, they completely understand the assignment. They know what they're doing. And, and I, yeah, I, 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 I think this will be really good for all of the authors involved as well. Um, and, and it, it'll be, it'll be good for the series and, and it'll be, I, again, it'll be good for me. I'm, I'm excited to keep the series going, but I'm also really excited to have a lot less of a commitment to publishing. Um, it was, it was just too much. And, and you know, in, in this world, I wasn't writing enough either. And I, and mm. I, I, I felt like I was missing that. And, and I, I knew from the beginning of Dreadstone Press that like, if I ever felt like I was sacrificing my writing too much to do this, that I needed to reconsider. And, um, mm. cause that's, that's the only reason I got into publishing in the first place is because I enjoyed the writing. I enjoyed the, the industry fraught as it may be, but, um, I I really do enjoy writing and 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 putting these books out and having readers read them. It's a great experience. I mean, and and I couldn't keep sacrificing my own work for this. So it it's a it's a best case scenario, although a little bit. It's still sad. <laughs> it's still sad. I mean, yeah, it's it's bittersweet because um, I mean, <clears throat> anything that gives you more time to continue to to you know practice your voice and and to right you know I, f I feel like that's a that's a good thing more literature from you is a good thing because you've got readers like me who want to read it <laughs> you <know? laughs> thank you um but I I I can also understand how it's also sad to have to let something go you know anything go um you know to but but to see it move on to a, such an esteemed press um yeah. I mean that's also really good and it could mean really great things for those writers too. So, yeah, I completely agree. So, with regards to your own projects, do you have anything on the horizon that you're really looking forward to that you'd like to share? Yeah. So i I've mentioned this, mentioned this, I think, in a couple other interviews. So I'm I'm still committed to it, although I need to start putting some work into it. Um, I have another uh, novella that I wrote couple years ago last year wait I don't I don't remember exactly it's um it's called reanimated Rex and it is a and it is it, it is my <laughs> it is my love letter to my all-time favorite movie Jurassic Park um it is it, it's not 
completely techno thriller but it um it there's some supernatural involved but it's it's like frankenstein meets jurassic park there's some action there's some oh my God. there's a lot of dinosaur hey uh, surprise surprise the dinosaurs come back to life and so <laughs> that, I, I think I've, i think i have a theme here um but i'm the intention is to self-publish that next spring um i think uh, we're getting close to where i need to start making stuff happen but i i feel committed to that and i I I really like this story and I dinosaurs are kind of a hard sell for publishers, which is interesting because I think a lot of readers like reading about dinosaurs. Um, it's kind of similar with zombies. I think people still really enjoy zombie things, but a lot of publishers, no zombies. I don't want zombies. Um, <laughs> anyway, that not to uh, reanimated Rex theoretically will be self-published next spring. Um, I I think I think that'll be a good one. Uh, I'm actually really excited about that now that you mention it. Um, I didn't know that I wanted to read a story about a reanimated dinosaur. Uh, but when I think about it, I do. I really want to read that story. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. This has been a really lovely conversation. Where can people find out more information about you and your un- upcoming projects? Um, yeah, that- Thank you, Trevor. This has been it's been a, it's been a blast. I've had a lot of fun. Uh, so uh, yeah, you can find me social media at Alex Evanstein, Instagram, Twitter, X, whatever stupid thing you want to call it. I should probably actually do something with the blue sky thing that I've got, but I haven't yet. Um, and then AlexEvanstein.com. Dreadstonepress.com will exist for a while. There's still a lot of really, really great flash stories that you can read there. Um, need to figure out what I'm going to do with that site and how I'm going to kind of merge things because, uh, yeah, but the websites are good because theoretically those won't be going away or won't turn into a complete dumpster fire. Like, uh, well, thank you so much, Alex. Um, this really has been wonderful and, uh, hopefully we'll keep in touch when, uh, reanimated Rex comes out. Absolutely. I hope so too. <laughs> <laughs>